0: You are listening to the First Baptist Jinx podcast. To learn more about FBC Jinx, including our gathering times, visit us online at fbcjinx.org. Today's talk comes from Pastor Cody Brumley. Good morning, church family. It's good to be with you, those joining us online, uh, for our friends that are sitting just right over there in Overflow. Thankful for joining you, joining us as well. We will be in Acts chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, please open up to Acts chapter 2. That's where we will be picking right up where we were last week. Uh, If you were here last week, you know that uh, we walked through the chapter of Acts 2, focused in on Acts 2, verse 42. And really, that's kind of our setting for today. As the Holy Spirit falls in the apostles, Peter preaches... We see 3,000 who receive what he says is true, meaning that they place their faith in Jesus Christ, who died, resurrected and ascended to be with God. And so that is the the place that they've put all their hope for salvation in, right? That's what's happened. They get baptized. And by the way, if uh, you didn't know, after the 11 o'clock service last week, we had a young man named Daniel walk forward and he said, hey, you said I could be baptized, I'm following Jesus, I need to be baptized. And so we walked him right up here as the church was clearing out and baptized the brother uh, who's joining this church family. So uh, yeah, we can celebrate that. Um, we have a baptism next hour as well. Uh, and so I'm just giving you a heads up, the water's warm, it's ready. If you're following Jesus, you haven't done it, come on, all right? It's great. And there's no age at which you say, well, uh, you know what, I missed that chance. No, <laughs> you didn't. There's never, you never age out of obedience. So there's a great chance for you. So he did that just like they did. Now, after we get that, In Acts chapter 2, we get to verse 42 where Luke starts to summarize the life of the early church. The church has sprung into existence. What are they doing? He says this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and prayers. Kind of the four disciplines of a disciple. And it would make sense that these four things is what the church would do. Because I want you to think about the apostles. What did those 12 do while they followed Jesus? Well, they were deeply devoted to his teaching. They hung on his every word. They were devoted to the fellowship. They went together everywhere and provided for one another with each other's means. They were devoted to the breaking of bread, both continuing the Lord's Supper, which had just been instituted, but just the regular rhythm of life being together. They shared life together into praying. It's what they'd done for three years. It only makes sense that now 3,000 more people follow Jesus, that they would do the same things. Now, what that list gives us is what the disciples were doing. It's what the early church did. It doesn't explain what happened among the early church while they did that. And those are different things, right? What we do, what's being done by us, and what happens among us are two different things. We saw this happen in real time last week during an NFL game. I don't know how many of you guys watch professional sports. Uh, how many of you are aware of the player that collapsed? Last? Okay, I see a lot. Of, okay, we, we, we know about this. Really sad moment this player collapses, the game stops. And we see men weep. We see prayers led. The game doesn't resume. The game didn't stop because of what players do. All right, we, we know what players do. They prepare, they exercise, they give their life to this, they go out and they run plays and they try to win and they execute the game. But what we see them do doesn't actually explain what happens among them. See, for a brief moment, we saw the veil pulled back of the thing they do and we, we were reminded, oh, the, these are just men that have families that struggle and risk and put their life on the line together. In, th- in that very real sense, we saw the humanity and we said, oh, what well, we experienced from the crowd where it's very easy to watch and celebrate what they did as though we did it, we scored a touchdown, right? And it's very easy to critique them for not doing it the way we'd wanna do it and for letting us down. We remembered we- we're not among them. We don't experience what they experience. There's flesh and blood there. And so there's a distinction, right, between what we do and what actually happens among those that are doing it. So it is with the church. In this text, Luke gives us what the church does, these four disciplines. That's great. He's going to take the next four verses and unpack what happens among the church while they do those things. And the church is the same way. You could be here even today and be someone who sits on the outside and you celebrate things that the church does as though you did it and then you critique and blast the church the church for the things that they do and i would just beg you to consider maybe the right position is in the stands maybe it's to be among the church to step in and do these things because only in doing this list of 42 do you get to experience 43 through 47. so that is our context i want to be very clear what we're going to talk about the great things the church experiences together They happened to people who were saved, baptized, and devoted to the apostles' teaching, that is to learning and growing in the knowledge of their faith, to the fellowship, to giving towards one another and care for one another, to the breaking of bread, to shared life together, and to the prayers. Those who were devoted to that experienced the following, 43 through 47, and awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is a list of what happens among God's saved people. So if last week we learned new habits come from new hearts, Or to put it another way, um, devotion drives discipline, right? If I'm devoted to the Lord, it's going to drive my disciplines towards the Lord. This week, we're gonna see what happens among us while we practice that. The first thing was awe came upon every soul, a sense of awe. uh, Dr. Paul Tripp, he calls this the antibody of apathy. A sense of awe and apathy can't coexist. They, they, They can't exist in the same heart. And so, to that extent, with awe coming over every soul, that would mean there just wasn't apathy among the early first church. There wasn't people that were just going through the motions that didn't care, that weren't moved. They were moved by what God was doing. And awe is a sense, it's a state of mind you have whenever you get immediate perspective because of the enormity of something else. So we sense awe whenever there's an enormity of a moment, there's an enormity of a place, like going to a mountain or a Grand Canyon. Whenever you get the enormity of it, and you suddenly get perspective. I'm not as big, I'm not as significant, I'm not as all knowing as I thought I was. Awe produces that in us. So when I look at the text, I can't help but think a a good summary of 43 would be that they were experiencing the presence of God. Because awe is the only appropriate response to the presence of God. When you come close to the enormity of God from a safe place. How many of you have been to the Jinx Aquarium? Right, the little shark thing you walk through? Yeah, and and your kids, your kids, and or you, put your face up on it. See how close you can get to a shark? Right, okay. There's a sense of awe because I'm in the presence of this thing with enormous, terrible power. If I'm in, I don't want to be in the water with it, but I can get as close to it as I want and appreciate it. And I'm not afraid of it. I'm in awe of it because I'm close to it from a safe place. This is what the church was experiencing with God in a brand new, a fresh way. They could be face to face in the presence and close to God, the powerful, wrathful, just, omnipotent, omnipresent God. From the absolute safety of being in Christ. Zero fear of the wrath of God, of the punishment of God, of the rejection of God. No fear of any of that. They get to get this close to him from a, for the presence of Christ knowing I'm fully safe. I only experience his majesty and his goodness and his glory and his favor. That's all I experience from this place. Awe is what they felt. And we know that it was a presence of God producing awe because it was accompanied by signs and wonders. That's what the rest of that verse says. It says wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. Now they weren't in awe of the wonders and signs. There's no Greek word that connects those two phrases. So these are two distinct things. All was on every soul and there was the presence of wonders and signs among the apostles. They were in awe of God and it was affirmed by wonders and signs. That's how New Testament works. This isn't a teaching. Uh, this text doesn't actually teach us about the miraculous, but I'll give you a couple of antidotes for it, just briefly. When we see wonders and signs, that is talking about extraordinary things, leaving a supernatural impression on those who observe them. It it carries a number of functions. First, it always accompanies a message. The miraculous always serve to advance the message of God. And so it's affirming that. If the attention does not go to the message and to the truthfulness of God and the character of God, then it is false. It is fake. It's drawing attention to somebody else and something else that's not from God. Also, they were always uh, restorative. When you look at wonders and signs in the New Testament, it was restoring God's original order. So death was restored to life. Sickness was restored to health. Brokenness was restored to wholeness. And all the miracles we see, we see this restorative work that's being done that lets those looking on get a taste of the kingdom of heaven. So whenever the miracle occurs, they go, that's what God intended life to be like. It doesn't suspend the natural order. It restores it in a way that we know the way God meant for things to be before sin entered the world. And so that's what miracles do. And those miracles would fix their hearts, but it would also reveal hearts. For the ones that observed a miracle, it would soften the heart of perhaps an unbeliever who, who says, well, what power is behind this message? So God would use it to soften hearts or to reveal the hardness of hearts. The Pharisees who said, well, you gave us that sign, give us another one. So, that, so the miracles existed among the early church with the apostles affirming this. They're, they're in the presence of God, And, verse 44, all who believed were together and had all things in common. So there's a sense of awe. That's what they experienced with the early church. There was miraculous restoration happening, right? And they were all together and had all things in common. The word for that, belonging. There was immediate belonging. Belonging to the church family whenever they had their lives possessed by Jesus suddenly they found themselves belonging to everybody this means the societal structures that meant that were meant to divide people People of this class and this class don't associate. People of this ethnicity and this ethnicity don't associate. People of this income and this income don't associate. All those distinctions that the social world had given them in early Rome, they looked at the church and said those were gone. These people came to Jesus, and now they had all things in common because they had the thing in common being Jesus. And this is a miraculous work. Nothing else can accomplish this but Jesus. They were together. And this also makes sense because they now had their hearts fixed in a new culture. Has anybody been to Chicago in this room? It's one of many examples of a major city. Okay. The first time I went to Chicago was on a mission trip. And I remember that we had gone and hit a couple of different places and we turned the corner and like, here's like pizza, right? We're in Chicago. And then now like, here's Indian food and all the signs like were written in another language. And I thought, what has just happened? And I, and I entered little India. Because everybody over years who'd moved to that place that was from an Indian heritage and culture had moved to that place. The culture found each other because they had a shared language, shared values, shared traditions, and shared symbols. Those are the four elements that make up a culture. And so you walk there, and suddenly you're like, oh, they have everything in common. Now, clearly there's distinctions among them, right? They weren't all clones of each other. Yet, culturally, all things there. That's what we see happening immediately the church is born and there's a culture within a culture. Now, what's not, this is just, we'll say this a few times. This is observations of Luke who's writing. He's not giving us commandments. So I'm not saying like, okay, so you need to only hang out with Christians. No, what I'm telling you is apparently when Jesus has your heart, you will find your belonging with Christians. You will have a deep love for people that are far from God and you want them to be able to belong. But when you're looking for where your identity and where your support and where your care and where your value and where your belonging is found, it just won't be with the world because they don't talk like you, talk value what you value, have the traditions you have or have the symbols that represent their life the way that yours do. You are of a kingdom culture when you are a Christian and you will be drawn to it, which gives us the antithesis of that, that if you are not drawn to be around God's people, it might be that you are too comfortable in the culture of non-believing people. Find your home with God's people. That's what they did. And then the proof of it is verse 45. They have all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That is a mark of just an incredible unified culture. Philippians 2 says it this way, when it's describing the mind of Christ, it says, we esteem others' needs as more important than our own. When they have everything in common, it's proven because your need is met with my resource. I view your need as the same level of having my own need. I'm going to do whatever it takes to meet that need. And so that's what the church starts doing. It says they start selling their possessions. That word, that Greek word there, uh, typically is associated with property. So real estate. In Acts chapter 4, as we see, it says, a man sells a field. So he's selling possessions, things like that, that they own, and belongings. Another word, that Greek word is used other places, goods, or as in uh, just materials that people have. So two ways to understand that word. They were selling things that they had, and they were like, you know what, I don't need this. The, the proceeds from this would be better spent on someone else's needs. Or, number two, goods could be understood as whatever they used to make a living. So if I were a person who sells vegetables at the market, I'm now taking proceeds from that and I'm giving it to the church to say, this isn't just for my family, this is for this family. Let's make sure no one's in need. If I'm selling clothing, I'm taking portions of that and I'm giving it that way. So they were selling their properties, they were selling their goods, the regular work they had or things they own and said, we are using this to meet needs. And that is so countercultural. And we see Jesus actually talk a whole lot about it. Luke, who writes this, also writes about this level of giving inside of Luke chapter 12. And as we go there, I want to distinguish these two. Luke here is observing, right? He's not commanding. There's not like, are you commanding us to to sell and give give everything away? Um, No, that's not a command. This is an observation that this apparently was a regular practice of the early church. But it might have been based on this teaching in Luke 12 from Jesus. Luke 12, verse 13, we're going to read for a little while, but it's just too good to like, not read all of it, so we're going to go through all of it. Someone in the crowd said to him, that's to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who, am I, uh, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? He said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. So in that moment, Jesus points out the question from the man wasn't actually about fairness, it was about him coveting. So he says, Take care against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. If you want to see a scripture that refutes a modern day belief, it is that. One's life does not consist of an abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. He said, I will do this. I will tear down my bards and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is that the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So here's a guy who didn't understand what his possessions were really for. And this is the only place that that parable is recorded in the Gospels. But Luke goes on to the next section, and we read things that sound familiar from the Sermon on the Mount, where Matthew records this in Matthew 6. This is Luke 12, verse 22. And he, Jesus, said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They neither have storehouses or barn, right, like that other guy had, yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than birds? Of which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If you are not able to do a small thing as that, by the way, really funny, right, Jesus? He's like, if you can't do something as simple as adding an hour to your life, he's like, not a big deal for me. You can't do that, right? If you can't do something that easy, then why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you? O you of little faith, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations in the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Hear that. Your Father knows your needs. Instead, seek his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is the words of Jesus. Your father's pleasure. God takes great and deep joy in giving you the kingdom of heaven, not little things like birds and grass have, giving you the kingdom of heaven. So he says in verse 33, sell your possessions, give to the needy, Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. So there's the teaching. And here in Acts, they're not getting taught this. They're experiencing the reality of it. Jesus had possessed their heart, so now their possessions found their purpose. That's what happened. Jesus has possessed their heart. Now all the things that they possess have been given purpose. They realize, oh, all these things that I own, the property I own, and the goods that I have, and the job that I have, I now see the reason God has entrusted me with all this, and it is for the sake of others and the glory of the name of Christ. Suddenly, every possession had purpose, and it wasn't to serve them. And their own identity, their own good, and their own wants, it was because God would meet the needs of others through them in such a way that by the time you get to Acts 4, it says there was not a needy one among them. Can you imagine a room this size and not a single person in need? Why? Because Luke 12 tells us the the Father knows your need. He's going to take care of it. Now, this might be the point where you're like, Cody, I love that idea. That sounds heavenly, right? We're all gathered together and nobody has a need because they're all met. I am still slightly cautious about the first piece in which their needs are met by my resources. Still come to terms with that. And and, and if you sense that tension, just fixate on the word my. Their needs and my resources. Whose resources are they really? What do you have that God did not give you? And for what good and wonderful reason did he give it to you? See, that's the beauty of the church. It's whenever you walk in and you're looking for opportunities to use God's resources for God's people and the needs in their life, as opposed to looking how you can hang on to yours. Because in the same way, that apathy and awe can't exist in the same heart, neither can kingdom seeking and hoarding resources. They just don't, at least not in the early church. And so uh, we have to acknowledge that there is a correlation between your grip on possessions and their grip on you. The tighter you hold to them, the tighter they hold to you. The more that you release those, the more that you are released from them. And you find freedom to experience this. A group of people who had all things in common. And so nobody had need. Verse 46 tells us, by the way, this is, it's easier to do this to be insanely generous for people you love and people you know. It just is. And verse 46 tells us that every day, day by day, they were attending the temple together. They were breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. They shared life. So what did they experience? The sense of awe, the presence of God, this restorative miracles around them. They They experienced this insane generosity and never having a need because God kept providing through the church family. They experienced this going and sharing life together, right? To the temple, large group. To homes, small groups. So they gathered consistently in large and small ways. To the temple, they feasted on the word of God. When it says that they go to the temple together, That is a different Greek word than we found in verse 44, where it says that they were together. This Greek word in verse 46 comes from two different words, from same and passion. They went to the temple with the same passion. There's this picture of this hunger to just be with God's people, to learn more about this God and this incredible Savior who has saved us. There's a hunger for that, that they shared, And they also had their physical hunger met, home to home, having more than enough. Abundance. Everywhere that they went. And so how was it they received it? Two words, glad and generous. Glad means exuberant joy or wild joy. I talked with my brother Jim Smith this morning, one of our senior adults, a brother who is just exuberant joy. That was just the regular practice. They were in awe and they were joyful people and then generous. That word generous versus generous hearts, this just struck me personally. Uh, The word actually means simple or uncomplicated. It's a word that was used for a street that didn't, uh, or a path that was smooth and didn't have any stumbling blocks. They received their food with exuberant joy and simple hearts. Uncomplicated hearts. It was just... Easy, God is providing for us. And so they praised him and they had favor with all people. The word favor is a Greek word karen. It's the same word that you see translated grace throughout the text. If you didn't know that grace and favor uh, are synonymous in their use. uh, So they had grace, had favor with all of God's people. That was their experience. That's what happens among the people of God. And I can't help but think as I read that text, I can't help but think, well, of course, this is how Luke remembers it because this is probably how they were praying. So it doesn't explicitly say this, but as I read this and I was like going, okay, so this is what happens when God's people get together. They do these four things, but what they experience, the awe and the generosity and the needs, meeting all of this, it sounds familiar. And it sounds like Matthew 6, when Jesus said, when you pray, you should pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's a statement of awe revered is your name. You are in heaven, I am on earth. Our Father who's in heaven, I'm in awe of your name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth now as it is in heaven. What were they experiencing? the restorative, miraculous works of God among them. They were experiencing a place where there was no need because people weren't held by their possessions, but everything they had was made available to God. They were experiencing day by day, being with people, discovering the new things about God. And that's what eternity is, by the way, right? Eternity is where we have all eternity to go generation to generation and say, tell me what God did while you were alive. Tell me about how you saw God move in your day. And we get to talk endlessly to the millions who've been saved by Jesus about the good glory of God in his presence. It's endless discovery of his goodness. We'll never run out of it. And so that's what they were doing. They Day by day, discovering more about God. And they had an endless, abundant supply of food, Their total provision. Every need met. And so they just, they're just praising God. They were experiencing the kingdom now, taste of it, everywhere they looked. So as your kingdom come, you will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And God was doing it through the church. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That sounds a lot like grace with all people. That God, give us grace for whenever I misstep with my brother, and God, give me grace for them whenever they misstep with me. There's just grace abounding instead of holding all of each other captive by the way we've hurt one another. It's just grace. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. They watch that happen. What are we tempted by? Two things we're tempted by. James tells us our desires. I'll tell you my experience, the places I see people most tempted. One, love of money, which they had already been set free from, right? They understood, oh, the possessions, these are all gods, they're just meant for God's people, that's it. And need. Whenever we believe that there's something we are lacking, that God's holding out on us, well, I need more of this, I should have that, I deserve this in my life. Whenever we have a perceived need, we are tempted to go meet that need outside of God's provision, except God was meeting all of their needs. Love of money, gone. Provision, gone. It says protect us from the evil one, right? What is the root of all evil? The root of all evil is the love of money. What's connected there? And so, again, they're they're free. I say don't lead us in temptation. He wasn't. Instead, he was delivering them from this present evil reality. And they got to just live in the freedom of being provided for, loved, belonging people. And the only response to that is to say, thy kingdom, thy power, and thy glory forever, right? Statements of praise, they praised God. I I can't help but think, when Jesus said pray this way, that the early church started praying that way, and so it was really easy to recognize God was answering their prayers, which made me think, what if what we get out of church is what we pray to get out of church? And I was convicted of, God, what, what am I praying for? Am I praying, God? overwhelm me with a sense of awe when I come into your family. God, help me see all my possessions as a way. Help me see needs that you can meet through me. Oh, what a glorious thing to be generous. God, help me see what I have in common with all the people in this room, not what, not what the world would tell us that we have different from one another. What if we were seeing exactly what we were praying for? And so they experienced this. If I had to summarize in a word... What happens among God's people? The kingdom of heaven is experienced. But that's not, it's not all. I want to leave out verse 47, the very last sentence. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. When we practice these four things, these four disciplines, what we actually experience is so much more. We experience the kingdom of heaven on earth and God expands the kingdom of heaven on earth. So the kingdom of heaven is experienced and the kingdom of heaven is expanded. To put it another way, the more people live saved, the more people God saved. When I stepped into the lead pastor role, I'd met with different people who'd ask questions. Well, tell me about your vision, what you're thinking, what's your plan for this? And there's a few people who are sort of passionate evangelists here. Tell me about your plan for evangelism. What are we gonna do to, to evangelize? If I had to be honest, like it's this. It's like, live saved. Show up to the church and experience the awe and the glory and the wonder of all these things that happen with God's people. Experience that in such a way. Don't confuse that with share the gospel, use words if necessary. No, when you experience the gospel, words are necessary, right? You praise God. You can't help but talk about it. Your life and what God delivers to you through the church body can't help but be talked about. Which also, by the way, made me evaluate the way that I talk about the church. Am I a fan who sits outside and says, oh, the church does that, and the church does this to let me down, or when something good happens, oh, well, we did that. As a and I's friend, Courtney Rising, shared recently, we were reminded of, she talks about the bride of Christ, right? The church isn't beautiful because she's perfect. But she'd she'd shared where the bride of Christ is beautiful because the bridegroom is perfect. Listen, if you're looking for things to critique about the church, you'll find them. You'll find them in Acts chapter five. That's where they show up and then they don't leave the church. Acts five, the agenda of man starts to infiltrate the church and sin starts to show up and people start to mess things up and that's why we have all the letters of the New Testament and it's messed up until Revelation. So if you're looking for things to critique, you will find them and you will risk missing Everything God wants you to experience from being a part of a church. So I would challenge you, perhaps, instead of thinking about what the church does, what if you were to commit to doing the things the church does in your own personal life so you can experience what can only be experienced in a church family? And by doing so, the kingdom of God will advance. And you'll get taste week in and week out of the kingdom of heaven experienced. And that's what I want for you. That's the invitation, church. I would invite you. And it starts all the way back. We've got to do this right. It starts in Acts 2, that the word of truth is presented, that you are a sinner and Jesus Christ died to give you a means by which you could be made right with God. And so it starts with receiving that truth and saying, I realize I am a sinner and that I'm separated from God, but my faith is in Jesus Christ. It's not in a prayer, it's not in church attendance, it's not in a work, it's not in this list of four things. My faith, my hope for salvation is that Jesus Christ is in heaven right now. And I say, his work saved me. When you do that, you receive, according to Acts 2, we talked last week, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the forgiveness of sins. God dwells with you when you believe that. And as a result, you get baptized So the church physically, visibly knows I'm no longer what I was. I now belong to this culture, this community, and I'll live this way. And then as you start to live that way, you experience little taste of the kingdom of heaven every single day amongst the people of God. So there are different steps for us to take as we're going to move into a time of invitation. If you've never receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've never made that commitment, today is your day of salvation. Don't walk out of here not knowing where you stand with God. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. Secondly, if you've never been baptized, we'd invite you to do that. You could do it today, or we could talk about it and plan it for another day. If you want to have some family here to celebrate, that's great. But celebrate with the church what Jesus has done in your heart. And maybe you've been on the outskirts of the church. Maybe you're here still cynical because of all the things you see posted and read about the church. And you're like, I just don't know if I want to be a part of that. Be a part of it. <laughs> Believe what the text says about it. It is beautiful and it is good and it is heavenly. Be a part of this. So if you want to take one of those three steps, when we stand, I'm going to invite you to go to these double doors, kind of our next step space, talk with a pastor and say, I'm in. Salvation, baptism, I want to join a church. Move that way. If that's not your move, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. When you stand, I'm going to ask you to, to pray. Pray to stand and turn your heart and your attention to God and reflect on this text. Pray in a way to say, God, what do I really want to see out of church? Help me see it. Pray in a way that you would commit to say, God, I will place my life into regular practices that let me see this. I'll devote myself to, to the word. I'll devote myself to the fellowship. I will give. I will devote myself to being with believers. I will gather and I'm going to pray so I don't miss what you're doing. You respond as God leads you. Would you stand let's pray. Father, as we stand up, I pray for those who need to take a step that they would do it today. That they would step out from their seat and they would follow you. For those that know they have not followed in baptism, that today they would say, I just can't wait anymore. I want that life and it starts with obedience. For those that need a church home, God, may may they commit today. So we are landing here, we are in. We want to experience what happens among God's people here. And Lord, for those of us that don't have a move to make that way, oh Lord, would you capture our heart? Would you let us fall in love with the church again? Would you help us remember what happens among your believers? God, bring to mind the way we see, the way we see you work, the things that are worthy of being in awe over. You're reconciling miracles. Bring to mind, the passion we have to learn. Bring to mind the oneness that we have as a family. Bring to mind all the beautiful things that exist in the body of Christ. And may we give you great glory for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.